Welcome to Inside Scope, the American Gastroenterological Association podcast that will help you advance your patient care one half hour segment at a time. Join us to hear from the experts, learn new skills, and stay abreast of changing best practices. We'll be tackling a different topic each month, so make sure to subscribe and join us on our mission to improve digestive health for all. Good morning. My name is uh, G.S. Raju. I'm uh, one of the editors for Gastroenterology Grand Rounds section of Gastroenterology. Today, I'm delighted to invite Dr. Deepak Parkhal, who is an IBD expert, and Dr. David Ballard, who is an abdominal imaging expert from the WashU in uh, St. Louis. Welcome, Deepak. Welcome, David. We really appreciate you uh, sharing a, a very interesting and a very complex IBD case. For the sake of our trainees, let me present this in brief. This is a 49-year-old woman who suffered with a, quite a complex uh, Crohn's disease for over 20 years. She underwent uh, uh, surgeries, subtotal colectomy and also suffered with quite extensive perianal disease. She was refractory to anti-TNF agents, and her perianal disease, reviewing your notes, it looks like she, that crippled her. Uh, she had abscesses, fistula, several interventions, cetons, multiple things going on, and ultimately led to uh, development of a cancer in that area. So we're going to use this case, and we want you to help our trainees learn how to manage complex perianal disease in a patient with Crohn's disease. Welcome, David, and welcome, Deepak. So let us start with uh, Deepak. So when you see a patient with Crohn's disease and patient complains of perianal symptoms, tell us how do you manage that patient in your clinic? What all do you do when you see that patient in the clinic? Yeah, thank you, uh, Professor Raju. And again, uh, let me start by thanking you for inviting us to this podcast, uh, which is connected to the recent gastro grand rounds on this topic that we were invited to submit. So when I see a patient with Crohn's disease, especially with possible involvement of the perianal area, Definitely, I think, start with a standard history and physical examination. I think the history is important to really understand how much the perianal symptoms, typically things like fistula drainage, drainage from the fistula that is soiling undergarments, patients with significant drainage end up using pads. So definitely understanding sort of how many such pads they're using per day gives you somewhat of a clinical burden of disease based on the symptoms. They may have other symptoms such as either blood or stool coming out of the fistula. Again, important to know that pain in the local area, especially during bowel movements, also a feature. You may also actually understand through history how much that's really affecting their overall life in general, which is again important to understand the impact on the quality of life, such as being even able to sit through education, whether that's lectures or at work, and how it affects their social life, being able to go out and about, interact with friends and family. So it's really important that history really sets you sort of the threshold of what is the burden of disease. 
physical examination in the gastroenterologist office of course is important i think the thorough perianal exam is useful to see where is the external opening if you can identify one or multiple ones if there are and how they are related to the position of in men scrotum or the vagina to understand how there may also be potentially extension of the perianal disease to involve the uh, anogenital area and uh, local organs in both sexes and then coming to the rectal exam i would say that this is something that should be carefully discussed with the patient because if they are in a considerable amount of pain already i don't think that's something then that should be taken lightly and done in the office without any sedation or anesthesia but of course in a patient where they are not in pain and are open to the idea of a standard rectal examination that is definitely still useful in the office again to bring out other features such as if they have a stricture that is palpable and or or if you feel a mass and or or if you are also starting to elicit tenderness in particular quadrants which may increase the suspicion for a underlying abscess because again then the next step which is really under getting quality imaging as a next step that i would order what kind of imaging i order may depend on this exam because if i'm suspecting an abscess one would like to get an imaging that we can get done quickly such as a ct of the ab- abdomen and pelvis to look at the abscess and then guide them towards colorectal surgery for a emergent abscess drainage versus if i'm not suspicious of an abscess and i'm then looking to sort of get a more detailed anatomy of the area i would then go for a detailed mri of the pelvis specifically official protocol to give us more details and so that would be sort of my initial assessment of the patient i would also obviously get labs to look at inflammation markers and bring out other features of the burden of the disease such as anemia and what degree of anemia they have and if that's iron deficiency versus other features such as b12 and folic acid deficiency which you can also see especially since the crohn's disease may also involve often their small bowel especially in the ileum Oh, that's it. Thank you so much, Deepak. Let us request uh, David uh, for his insights, you know, when he sees a patient with Crohn's who comes in for imaging studies, how does he go about reviewing those images and what information is he specifically looking for? And how does he help the endoscopist or the gastroenterologist? Thank you very much. So first, it begins with whether or not patients undergoing CT or MR CT is often for patients with the suspected acute collection that may need urgent drainage or they are so symptomatic with their perianal disease that they cannot sit still in an MR scanner for 20 30 minutes in order to get the necessary sequences through the anal canal so a quick acquisition via CT and evaluating that the number one checklist we're looking for is abscess and that's usually in the form of a rim enhancing fluid collection often located in the perineum the gluteal cleft fat or the ischial anal fossa if intently looking for a fistulous tract that's connecting or feeding to it you can often find one or suggestion of one ct has an inherent limitation of the resolution and ability we're able to visualize a known perianal fistula compared to MR and we'll we'll get to that but 
if there is something feeding a rim enhancing lens containing abscess fed by a perianal fistula, oftentimes you can see the tract or see suggestion of the tract if intently looking for it. Now, getting to the better imaging test, MR using a fistula protocol, there's two major ways that we do the fistula protocol in Crohn's disease patients, and most centers follow the same type of two-tiered approach. Either that's pairing the fistula pelvis sequences with an MR enterography. Okay, it's a patient with known luminal Crohn's disease. They need evaluation of their small bowel, and we're going to do the fistula pelvises sequences as well, or we do a dedicated MR pelvis-only fistula protocol. The difference between those two is where we time the anal canal acquisitions in the dedicated fistula pelvis without an MR enterography. It's the focus. It's a shorter exam with an MR enterography. The major difference between those is that we have the anal canal sequences usually at the beginning of the examination when the patient's still able to hold still reliably for these particular acquisitions, depending on the resolution, they take three to eight minutes of sitting still to get these very high resolution, small field of view through the anal canal. And the difference between the two protocols, otherwise enterography or just the fistula pelvis is using intravenous contrast. Intravenous contrast in perianal fistulas is helpful in identifying or increasing one's confidence in communication of a perianal fistula with the internal sphincter. Oftentimes, we're able to adequately see the fistula tract on other sequences, but the post-contrast images are better in terms of being able to confidently delineate that tract. Now, in terms of conceptualizing and looking, evaluating the anal canal, it's being familiar or having yourself a reference available for the different types of perianal fistulas according to some type of classification system. The two major ones we may use are Parks and St. James. And with those concepts, seeing where the fistula tracks may go, delineating the internal sphincter, external sphincter, and the interspinteric space, knowing that a true perianal fistula that originates from the anal canal, not higher up, not above the anorectal junction, has to f- travel at some point through the interspinteric space. And using that framework to identify the fistula and classify and describe it as best we can communicate. That's very helpful. Uh, David, I want to ask uh, Deepak, and uh, maybe David can uh, chime in. I hear a lot about surface ultrasound being used by IBD experts, right? And uh, is there any role for a focus in uh, evaluating perianal disease? That's a great question. So I would say, as someone who's not a ultrasound-based imaging expert in IBD, My understanding of the current state of development of the use of 
transperineal ultrasound really because i mean surface ultrasound is typically sort of in the abdominal area so there are other more focused probes that can be used for a transperineal perineal ultrasound so that is still emerging in terms of its application in perianal crohn's disease currently it is not thought to be as sensitive and specific as an exam with a dedicated mri of the pelvis fistula protocol understanding detailed perianal fistula anatomy and also importantly to be also able to image sort of the supralevator space because there can be abscesses and fistulas that track above and extend above levator ani muscle and so especially these sort of fistula they are often extra sphincteric and completely bypass sphincters but actually are opening their internal opening is above the levator while the external one of course you can see from outside these are especially by my understanding hard to match with a transperineal ultrasound but it's still an evolving modality so i'm i imagine there would be developments further to make it better but i think i would probably defer that to david also on sort of his comments on this Sure, thank you. That's a very uh, relevant question in terms of the hot topic of the transabdominal point of care intestinal ultrasound imaging in the perineal and perianal region is more difficult than getting an ultrasound window through a transabdominal surface area from the factors Deepak mentioned of needing specialized probes. It is, in fact, something that we in radiology, at least at our center, used to do years and years ago with prostate ultrasounds, which has long, long been uh, abandoned of a transperineal or perianal prostate ultrasound with the advent of MR for imaging that. In order to get an adequate ultrasound in which you would be able to adequately either do a transperineal window or if one was doing an endoanal ultrasound, it's often having a setup to where it would be similar to doing a adequate jackknife type positioning and putting patients there. Some centers that do this largely in the context of having experience with staging Rectal cancer using endoanal ultrasounds may do it under light sedation. It's not something that we do frequently. It is an area of interest, but in view of a radiologist, we get more information on the MR acquisitions and we're able to deliver more from that examination and often having less time engagement with a case difficult to try to get a window and get an ultrasound window where we understand and have confidence in what we're looking at compared to oh it's an mri and we have all the information available in front of us so those are some of the factors yeah thank you thank you so deepak these cases are quite complex it's quite common to get a surgeon on board a colorectal surgeon on board when do you get them involved they tend to examine the patients under anesthesia what what all do they do when sure. they take the patient for examination sure i would say i view 
perianal Crohn's disease management, especially if visualizing perianal Crohn's disease management as something that a hundred percent of the time has to involve a multidisciplinary team. And by that, it includes an abdominal radiologist such as David, a gastroenterologist such as myself, and a colorectal surgeon in all cases. Now, I'll kind of explain why, because we talked about the initial assessment of the case. One of the things I didn't, I've probably forgot to mention there is, of course, that the patient should undergo a colonoscopy, and especially with careful exam of the rectum in terms of documenting rectal involvement, as in mucosal rectal inflammation. There's, of course, rectal inflammation also potentially noted, which is more of a transmural inflammation on the MRI, and these are important to know beyond the anatomy. And then comes the role of the colorectal surgeon. So the colorectal surgeons take the patient for an exam under anesthesia. Again, every patient with suspected or known officializing perineal Crohn's disease should undergo an exam under anesthesia. There's a study from Mayo Clinic now almost 20 years ago led by Dr. David Schwartz, which actually showed that combining an exam under anesthesia with another imaging modality, such as MRI of the pelvis, which is what is most commonly available, or centers that have a capability for endoanal ultrasound, endorectal ultrasound exam, combining the modalities has the best accuracy of close to 100% in terms of delineating the anatomy. So really, it's a combined diagnostic approach initially. So during the exam and the anesthesia, the colorectal surgeon is able to understand the anatomy and corresponding to what's showing up on the imaging. If any abscess is there, they're able to identify that and drain it. Another important understanding here is really sort of differentiating the patient's facial anatomy into simple versus complex disease. And this is most commonly known as AGA classification. And this is sort of a more probably a clinically useful classification, more so than a static anatomical classification such as Parks and St. James that David had mentioned, which is more of a description for where the fistula is opening. Now, the AGA classification, simple versus complex. Complex fistulas are those that are high, such as a high intersphincteric or a high transphincteric or extrasphincteric, as I mentioned previously, something that has multiple external openings, associated perianal abscesses, rectovaginal fistula, or an anorectal stricture. So patients with complex perianal disease are recommended to have the placement of a draining thread called as a seton. So this is something that's placed by the colorectal surgeon where they use fistula probes and then pass this non-cutting seat on and then sort of tie it at the end outside the patient's uh, perianal area. And the idea behind this is to allow drainage of the fistula so that when the patient is then subsequently started on a advanced therapy for management of the perianal Crohn's disease, the fistula does not accidentally close at either ends at the openings and then leave a non-draining tract in the middle, which may then end up giving rise to an abscess. So the role of the UA is both in understanding an anatomy, understanding simple versus complex disease, and then in patients with complex disease, placing a non-cutting seat on. Ideally, this is done before the patient starts the advanced therapy medical management. That's, uh, that's fantastic. So let me ask you this thing. So you have a patient with a abscess or a fistula, you drained, you put a seat on. Tell me about how do you manage a patient with 
complex perianal disease, maybe on one end, they still have some infection uh, in terms of how do you manage their infection and how do you manage the inflammation of the Crohn's disease in terms of timing? How do you go about managing in your clinic? Sure. So many things happen in parallel, as as you know, in sort of clinical care. And I see the patient in clinic. I've ordered the scan. The scan's about to happen, but this clinically based on my exam, the suspicion for perianal disease. Clearly, a patient with abs suspected abscess ideally gets a CT scan and then goes rapidly to colorectal surgery, potentially as immediate admit for uh, abscess drainage and or potentially coordinated as a quick outpatient procedure, especially in places including ours where we often have parallel colorectal surgery clinics happening with our gastroenterology clinics. And then simultaneously, we are starting the discussion with the patient of getting them on advanced therapy for actually getting the fistulas healed. So the best data for managing fistulizing perineal Crohn's disease, I would say, lies with infliximab, which is a tumor necrosis factor alpha antagonist as initial therapy, especially in a patient who's naive to advanced therapies. So that is something I would would say is first-line agent. We typically use that in combination with azathioprine, which is an immunomodulator, and we use that in combination as onset of therapy. I also typically start patients on antibiotics, especially to overlap with the first six to eight weeks of therapy. And there are studies done previously that have shown that combining an anti-TNF plus antibiotics is superior to using either alone. So that definitely, again, this data supporting the use of antibiotics, especially during the induction of the advanced therapy. Again, first line is infliximab. In a patient who, let's say, is experienced or exposed to infliximab, and if they are either, they had to stop infliximab because of side effects or they developed immunogenicity as in developing antibodies to infliximab and many such reasons for why either they did not respond to infliximab or they are unable to continue on infliximab, then that brings in the question of potential second-line therapies. In someone who is already exposed to infliximab and especially cannot be on it because of side effects or immunogenicity, is probably also not a good candidate for adalimumab, which is also an anti-TNF. There is post-hoc data from original registration trials to suggest the likely effectiveness of adalimumab for perianal Crohn's disease, but there's not a randomized control trial level data as we have with infliximab. Now, if these are not the choices, then other therapies include vedolizumab, which is an anti-integrin. There is an open-label trial using MRI endpoints that suggests it's effectiveness. There's also post-hoc data available with ustekinumab, which is an interleukin-1223 antagonist that suggests its utility. So these are potential second-line choices. There are more recent mechanisms of action that have been approved by the FDA, prominent among which is uparacitinib, which is a Janus kinase inhibitor specific to JAK1 enzyme. And I would in my current clinical practice, likely opt for uparacitinib as a, the likely best second-line agent based on 
data we have currently, the data we have with uparacitinib right now is post hoc from its original registration trials in Crohn's disease. And of course, real world studies need to be done in this specific area looking at what's the best second line agent. Another molecule worth mentioning is Rizankizumab, which is a interleukin-23 antagonist. Recent data in luminal Crohn's disease that was just presented at a recent conference, the United European Gastroenterology Week, shows that there may be clinical and endoscopic data that suggests non-inferiority for clinical outcomes and superiority for endoscopic outcomes with risenkizumab compared to ustekinumab. So again, I might position risenkizumab sort of as a better second-line agent after uparacitinib in these patients if they were not to respond to infliximab. Quite extensive coverage, Deepak. Nicely done. I really like it. I really like the way you summarize. It's very helpful. So let me ask uh, David, so when you see a patient with a fistulizing disease, right, and uh, you get a sense that the patient is going to go through quite a tough time based on what you see, are there any red flags that you can identify and say, hey, this is not like a typical Crohn's fistula, something else is going on, or this is a typical Crohn's uh, fistula, but it is a lot more than what we normally see? How do you actually help a gastroenterologist when you're reading them and say, hey, be careful with this patient? Sure. And that's a great question. The AGA classification, although clinical, has some useful imaging insights of fistulas that have high-risk features, either for something that is going to be poorly treated and hang around for a while, not completely resolve or as in the case of interest, be at risk for developing a fistula tract-associated cancer, mucinous adenocarcinoma. Let's talk about those. So the, as Deepak mentioned, a high origin of a fistula, and that is if it's at or above the level of the anorectal junction, it's just something that has a harder time being able to find a place to escape through the whether that be escaping via itself from the skin surface or in treating cannulating or surgically draining these patients how far a catheter whether it be a mushroom catheter or seton needs to be placed in order to cannulate this tract and adequately drain it over time so the high origin and the purpose of what a fistula is trying to do, a perianal fistula, it's getting and the body is looking for an escape route and it has very few choices. It can go up, down, or outer end of the sphincter. If it has upward or cranial extension to where it's going at the level above the level of the sphincters, a super elevator extension then those are can form abscess cavities that are persistent over months, months, years. It's not something that's close to the skin, such as a perineal abscess collection, a collection in the gluteal cleft subcutaneous fat, something that's finding its own space, high, set away from the skin surface, longer distance to be drained, to be adequately drained. 
And in particular, in Crohn's disease patients, having this long-standing fistula, it's not terribly uncommon that we have years and years of follow-up on patients with perianal Crohn's disease with MRI, and they have the same fistula for the past five years, seven years, 10 years even. Same distribution. Sometimes the fistula tract may be a little bit fuller in terms of higher width, higher fluid or purulent contents, and with or without an associated abscess cavity. If the patients have a, on imaging, an associated abscess cavity paired with the fistula that is present for years and years and years, the biggest red flags on imaging is when it stops having an aggressive inflammatory effect on the surrounding tissue. Abscesses have MR properties where it restricts the diffusion of water. It has often aggressive rim enhancement around it. And especially whenever the fluid, such as in this case of interest, starts to develop a microcystic architecture, something beyond fluid or even purulent pus or fluid within it, it has its own little architecture, then that is a red flag for a fistula tract-associated mucinous adenocarcinoma. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. I think, uh, you know, having the ability to have an exceptionally trained and competent radiologist makes a big difference in taking care of these uh, complex patients. Deepak, you know, this uh, patient eventually developed uh, cancer in the perianal fistula. That is, uh, that must be quite devastating for the patient and for the whole team, right? How did you manage this patient? Sure. So as David described in the previous few minutes that some of these red flag symptoms also occurred in our patient as this patient was being serially managed over time and continued to have refractory symptoms. Therapies were changed with the hope that we would see a clinical and hopefully a radiological response, which didn't happen. And eventually that led to more than one examined anesthesia and with biopsies and collection of gelatinous material from the fistula tract, which then led to a final diagnosis of mucinous adenocarcinoma in this patient. That diagnosis was definitely devastating both to the patient and, of course, the treating team here. The next steps there would be, in this case, really handing her off to a multidisciplinary team as we would in any other patient with anorectal cancer, which involves uh, the colorectal surgeon who's obviously already involved in this case, but also bringing in the expertise of the oncology team, both the medical oncologist and the radiation oncologist. Uh, in this particular case, chemo and radiotherapy was initiated with plans to reassess the response to that therapy over time with the likelihood being there, of course, that a patient will need a surgical resolution to follow given the area, likely in the form of abdominal perineal resection as sort of the end-stage strategy here for her presentation. One thing that struck me while I was reading the uh, manuscript was that gelatinous material. Does the patient complain saying that, hey, the... Drainage is a little bit different. 
That's a great question. Our understanding, of course, from reviewing the records and of course, as you would imagine, some of this is going retrospectively over time or multiple years, that there wasn't any clear indication that the patient noticed a change in the nature of the discharge. And that would be consistent with really being hard for really most patients to differentiate a typical mucoid discharge from a more gelatinous material. Certainly, new onset of bloody discharge would be something the patient is more likely to notice more easily and report to the treating team. So first of all, I want to thank you both. I've learned a lot reading your manuscript, uh, David and, uh, and Deepak. And, uh, and your entire team, you have put your hearts and souls in managing a very complex patient. You know, it's, you've been taking care of this patient for a long time, almost 20 years. Any last thoughts that you want to share with our audience with a special focus on our trainees uh, in terms of how to keep some of the highlights that you want them to remember? Sure. I think when it comes to perianal Crohn's disease, it is definitely something that is complex and requires a multidisciplinary team for management. So I think it's important to a, recognize that the patient has perianal Crohn's disease and then to understand the degree of management that is necessary. And then depending on where one is situated, whether understanding whether you are equipped at that center to manage the patient or ideally, if not, refer the patient to the appropriate IBD center as soon as possible, because again, managing the patient before significant complications set in, such as multiple abscesses or multiple fistulas or development of an anal rectal structure is important. There's certainly data from luminal Crohn's disease to suggest that early initiation of advanced therapy, usually within 1.5 to 2 years of disease, is important for better effectiveness of therapy. There's even a meta-analysis that is published in gastroenterology showing this. So while that has not been directly shown for perianal Crohn's disease, the logical extension would be that it's again important to recognize the perianal involvement early and refer if the appropriate management multidisciplinary team is not available locally. So that would be, I think, the main message I would leave beyond, of course, the details of the management. David? So in radiology and imaging, a classic vignette that we're given in patients, a clinical scenario, apart from perianal Crohn's, is that a persistent abscess around the perianal or perirectal region that gets drained and keeps recurring may be at risk for being a low rectal mucinous adenocarcinoma. This case is somewhat the reverse of that scenario. The recurrent abscess was always there in part, and over time, it developed this microcystic architecture within it insidiously over a number of years. And carrying that scenario with in having these patients with perianal Crohn's disease that have had fistula tracts and abscesses for years and years and years, is there a complex internal architecture that has been there as a microcystic appearance and slowly grows over time. That's how our patient cleared themselves with imaging. And there are surrogates to other uh, presentations of this cancer without perianal Crohn's disease. So 
I think in terms of the rare complication of mucinous adenocarcinoma fistula tract and perianal Crohn's disease, that would be the radiology teaching point from it. Thank you, Deepak. And I want to also thank your entire IBD team at WashU. And uh, we have learned a lot uh, from your case, Crohn's disease with complex perianal disease, ending up with uh, cancer. We have learned a lot. I want to thank you all. Thank you. Thank you, Professor Raju, for the invitation. And hopefully this is good teaching for the trainees. Thank you. Thank you very much. We appreciate the opportunity. Thanks for listening to Inside Scope, an official AGA podcast. Make sure to subscribe to be notified as we roll out new episodes. For more GI education, visit AGA University at agau.gastro.org.